sitting and watching uh, one of the shows that my girls were watching and had this commercial, a preview of a show coming up. I think it's called something like Martin, Martin, um, where it is revealing what it would be like if someone out in outer space was to visit our earth. And you know, we always have the vision, you know, I don't know if you ever look up in the stars and wonder, are we really the only ones out there? And, um, it's a question people often deal with. And, and so it has all these pictures of, of aliens that we've seen in times past of, of what they might have looked like in our imagination. And, and for those of us who uh, grew up in the 80s, uh, early 80s, we, we think of E.T. Uh, we have this, this moment of fingers connecting and lights going off in the fingers and Think well, the aliens maybe look like ET, or um, you know, there's the close encounters of the third kind, where you've you've got uh, a ramp coming down from a, a spaceship and the lights flowing, and and you got ethereal music playing in the background, and you see this kind of humanoid-looking shape and uh, of what it might look like. And then there's uh, the Mork and Mindy, where he actually looks like Robin Williams, and uh, and so I think this Martin Martin is is kind of a uh, 2012, 13 version of, of Mork and Mindy uh, of, of what's going on there. This is comedian uh, that's actually an alien. And it's, it's interesting as we read the scriptures and, and read Luke 2 and the Christmas story, it, you have to keep in mind that this is really a story of an invasion, of a, an alien invasion, if you will, uh, close encounters of the divine kind, of, of, of God coming into time and space, and to the affairs of human life. And we can't really get past that. That this is not just human families procreating as normal. This is something a little bit more to it. And I wanted to focus on that. We're going to read today from Luke chapter 1. This is one of the, uh, uh, the classic Christmas passages. Uh, and looking specifically... At the role of the Holy Spirit in the Christmas story. Um, I don't know if we've spent a lot of time thinking about that, but as we have looked at who the Holy Spirit is involved in the church and our life this past year, I think it's fitting for us to consider how the Christmas story came to pass with the role of the Holy Spirit and that He is uh, intervening in life. And so uh, with that thought in mind, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to begin with verse 26 and read through verse 38. And there's a lot uh, to be said about this passage, and I'm sure there's other pastors speaking on this this, uh, passage. But we're just going to focus today primarily on on the role of the Holy Spirit as revealed in this passage. And so let's stand as we read this together, Luke chapter 1, reading verse 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, for the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb 
and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age was, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You may be seated. So if you will focus with me in verse 30, keep your Bibles open. We're going to focus on this passage as well as I'm bringing several other passages for you to consider uh, as we look at the role of the Holy Spirit uh, in this, this, this passage. So first of all, you've got an angel, which is always an intimidating thing, as you see in scriptures, that it's usually accompanied with fear, uh, such of people falling down as if dead. And so it's not just the, uh, the maybe uh, angelic pose that we might have here, but it's, uh, think of something a lot more fear-inducing uh, that we see in the passage. And so the first thing the angel says to Mary is, don't be afraid, because you're, this is a good conversation. Uh, God's found favor with you. Now, Mary is very likely around 13, 13 or 14, uh, don't think 17, 18, uh, it was very uh, common in that day and time for, for betrothals to take place at a very young age of uh, marriage age, and that day and time was around 13 and 14, we know obviously she was betrothed, she's not yet uh, uh, in a living situation with Joseph. Uh, and so it's very likely that she is a young lady, around 13. Uh, and so uh, this is middle school. This is 6th, 7th grade uh, that we're talking about. I, I, I love the fact that God has already found favor with her. There's already something in that, that lifespan. And, and sometimes we undermine our younger ones and say, you can't do much. You know what? God said you can have a child called Jesus at the age of 13 and 14. And, and I'm not going to advocate so much that. But... I am going to advocate the fact that God can use and has used young people. We see this in the very like of the disciples. John was probably a teenager for him to live as long as he did afterwards, which meant the other disciples were not that much older. And so Jesus was 30, 33. You know what you're looking at when you think of disciples and Jesus? Think youth ministry. All right? Jesus being a youth pastor. Uh, with teenagers and young men. Uh, and, and so you see this thread throughout. And so here Mary is, just as a, a young lady, but yet she's found favor with God. There's something within her heart that has faith in Christ. Because we know that favor with God is accompanied with trusting Him. You, you cannot please Him apart from faith. It's impossible to do so. You must believe that He is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So that's from Hebrews eleven six. So we bring this together. Mary is seeking God. And it, she's found favor. Verse 31. And so uh, angel Gabriel drops a bomb on Mary and says, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name 
Jesus. And this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.15 where it talks about a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. Uh, and this word was in the Old Testament. Yes, could be used referring to young ladies, but there was no specific uh, terminology for virgins in, in the Hebrew. And so it was a word that also accompanied not only young women, but also accompanied virgins. And so it was something, a word used in Isaiah 7 that was true in the near fulfillment in Isaiah, but also true, word used that could be true of Jesus' day in Isaiah 7, verse 14 and 15. Now, verse 32 talks about the qualities of Jesus. He will be great. Uh, this is uh, in comparison with verse 15 in John the Baptist, where John is said that he will be great in God's eyes, Jesus will be great, unqualified. Uh, and so you have this comparison. Then he'll be called the son of the most high. This is El Elyon, the termini- terminology there. It had kind of a, a military term uh, to this title of God. And he's going to be the son of the most high. And the Lord God, this is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, this is the specific name for the Jewish uh, terminology for God, will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. All right. So, the throne of the father David. This is fulfillment to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14 uh, through 18, where the word of God, or verses 12 through 13, where, where God gives to David, you're going to have an everlasting reign. There's going to be a no end to your reign. Now, we know Israel's power ended. The king, does, king stopped, but this is fulfilled through Jesus uh, in his everlasting reign. And then it says that he will reign over the house of Jacob, and in his kingdom there will be no end. This is fulfillment to what we saw last week in Isaiah 9-6, that there is no diminishing to this. Now, I'm going to present to you that this started to be fulfilled at the ascension, when Jesus ascended up after the resurrection. Because we see in that passage, Peter explains in Acts chapter 2, verse 30 through 36, that when Jesus ascended up, at that point, God the Father gave the throne to Jesus. And he sits down at the right hand of the Father. And therefore, the Spirit of God comes to us. And as the Spirit of God is working in our life and, and establishing reign over our hearts, the kingdom of God is growing. It's growing. Do you know that when one person submits to God's spirit, it is establishing God's reign and his kingdom. And it's going to come to a fulfillment at the return of Christ. But it is beginning, even now, when we as followers of Jesus Christ submit our hearts to him. Now, it keeps on going here. Uh, In Colossians 1... I want you to write down some of these, and maybe you can read these later and study them later. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. It says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in him and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood 
of his cross. So read that passage. In Jesus is God. The fullness of all that God is, is in Jesus Christ. Jesus was there in the creation of the world. But yet, when Jesus comes as a baby, born as a baby, he has the title Son of the Most High. He is of the same nature of God the Father and was with God the Father in the creation of the world. This is what we call the incarnation in that God, who is spirit, takes on flesh in his Son. The miracle is not just how Christ was born, but that he came. That God the Father came. Now, when you have an announcement like this, this is going to produce some questions. Mary is like us, but hers are very personal, very practical. Mary said to the angel, verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? I think she probably got stuck on, you're going to have a child. And it all came blurred, and, and, and then the, who the child was was even more, but then she's still stuck on, you said, what? I'm going to have a, a what? A baby? That, how is that possible? And it's not so much of, of doubting, like maybe Zechariah was doing, because there's no rebuke in the response, but it was simply of, you're going to explain to me how this is going to work. Because I'm in betrothal period, but I'm not yet living with my, my husband, and, and it's just, you know... My mom's taught me some things. And how's this going to work? In verse 35, and, and this is where I want to introduce to you the intervention of the Spirit. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Basically, the angel says there's going to be an intervention which God the Spirit is going to work in your life. Now, I use that word intervention for, for a purpose. Usually when we hear the word intervention, we, we think of something of, of some uh, self-destructive desires that someone's going to come in and stop us. Um, I, I have a few, I have quite a few self-destructive desires, uh, but one of them that is the, the more readily uh, self-destructive is my desire for ice cream. It has a fairly immediate effect, and um, I find that uh, I have little control. Uh, when it comes to ice cream, and if it's there, my tendency is I'm going to eat some every night until it's gone. And my, uh, my only uh, remedy is just to eat it up. And once I eat it up, I'm like, whew, well, that's over with. Um, but I found that my children to be helpful as interventionists. All right? Uh, somehow they, they will sense that the freezer door is open. And that the carton has been coming out. I don't know if they smell it, they hear it or what, but they just sense that they will appear by my side. I want some. I want some. Or it was done more with condemnation. Again? I hadn't had any yet. You need to stop. You eat too much. You know? Uh, <laughs> they're not very nice about that. They, you know, they don't, they're not trying to be nice to me. They're just saying, you're eating too much, Daddy. You've got to stop. Uh, and so they're, they're interventionist. The Spirit of God comes. And he is an interventionist. He comes and appears because there is self-destructive tendencies in this world. And the Spirit of God is at work and invades, if you will, uh, intrudes and, and, and becomes a part of life. Now, this is not the first time the Spirit of God has intervened. But this is probably the most complete way the Spirit of God has intervened. 
I would argue that you see the intervention in the very creation of the world. And how the world started, if we believe the scriptures as, as I do, uh, in Genesis chapter 2, it tells us uh, a record of, of how things started, and that God was the one who started this. In verse 7, it says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, we know that where God the Father is, so is God the Spirit, as we've already read in Colossians 15. Where the Father is, where the Son is, so is the Spirit. In fact, Jesus said something interesting. In John 6.33, Jesus said, "...is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that are spoken to you are spirit and life." John 6.63, that's an important passage when Jesus gives some insight to the Spirit and His words and life. He says, when I'm speaking, it is life-giving because it is of the Spirit. And so when I read a passage like in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and that the breath of God comes in, and with the Word of God creation is made, I believe that not only the Father is sending out the decree, not only is it through Jesus, is also by the Spirit. So the very fact that life is an existent, according to Genesis 2, 7, is the result of of the Holy Spirit. So when you see those pretty flowers, when you see those cute pets, this is the result of God's Spirit. When we see life in us, it is the result of God's Spirit. Now, Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree... Of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we read in Genesis, they did exactly that. They disobeyed God and said, God, we don't need this instruction. And so we read it and we think, okay, they ate it. Now let's see if they die. And maybe we're a little disappointed in the fact that they didn't die physically. Like, okay, well, where's the grave at? And so, God, did, is it not true? Is your word not true? You said in the day that this happens, you shall surely die, and they did not die. What happened? But what did happen, according to Genesis 3, is that there was a severance that took place between who they were and who God is. There was a barrier that established... Uh, between man and God. And so God created mankind out of the Holy Spirit through the dust of the earth and gave them the Spirit to commune with God, to be made in His image, to relate to God. But when man sinned, the Bible says that he would die. And so what happened is in their spirit, they had a barrier to the living, eternal one, which meant that physical death would now be inevitable. It as if uh, a rose has been severed off the vine. And there may be some beauty and scent and qualities of life still in this rose, but it's just a matter of time before the death is evident. And you know, here's the sad thing. Adam had children in this state, and every one of them are born as a cut rose. Isn't that sad? I look at a baby, and it is as a cut rose rose you and i all know that it's just a matter of time before 
this baby will grow and the signs of death will be evident in this child's life. We all are cut roses because we have no life spirit. We have no communion to God. We are now oriented to ourself. Whereas before, Adam and Eve were oriented to God and the things that mattered to God. Now when they disobeyed God, it became all about themselves. So one of the sure signs of spiritual death is that we are no longer relating to the Eternal One and we're relating to ourselves. Everything that happens in life revolves around us. And that's why we don't have to teach our children uh, how to be greedy. We don't have to teach them how to lose their temper. It's, it's innate. It's right there. Because it's symptomatic of not having a life revolving around God, but oriented around ourself. So the Spirit of God came in and created mankind with life-giving spirit. But man chose apart from God, and that spirit died in the physical body. It's just a matter of time. Which is why, in John chapter 3, verse 6 through 8, Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus. He says to Nicodemus, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes in your heart, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus was talking to a religious man. This would be kind of like the Orthodox Jew of today. And he says, you've tried to love God. You've tried to keep the commandments. But you are dead in your spirit. You've been born physically, yes. But has there been your spirit born? So what Jesus is saying is that everyone born in this world is dead spiritually unless they're born again. So the fact is, if you're born only one time, you die twice. You die in your spirit and you die physically. But if you're born twice, born body and born of the spirit, you die once. Just a physical death in which the spirit continues forever. Now, here's what's interesting. Understand, we're born of the flesh we have no life spirit unless God does a work. I can have as many children as I want, and they may be as cute and cuddly, but every single one of them are going to be dead spiritually. And that's just how it is. That's how life is. But notice how Jesus was born. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will, shadow, will, uh, will overshadow you. What he's saying is that this child is born as the product of God's Spirit working in Mary. Now, John the Baptist was born of human seed, and the Bible says he would be filled with the Spirit while in the mother's womb. But he says of Jesus, he will be born, not just filled with the Spirit, he will be born by the Spirit, and the Spirit of God is such force and power that it can choose to take human flesh. And so when Jesus says what's born is flesh is flesh and what's born is the spirit is spirit, I would say perhaps from the record of Scripture that there is an exception. That Jesus was born in the spirit but took on flesh. Why is that important? Well, for Jesus to be the Messiah and the Redeemer, he had to be human. 
to represent you and me. He had to have flesh so that when he died, he could represent you. And that he could die. But he had to be more than just a human. So that his blood and his sacrifice would be effective, not for one person, but for the entirety of mankind who will turn to him. And so he had to have a divine nature. So that when he died, the sacrifice, the blood shed, the quality of the blood was effective for all mankind. He had to have a life that was greater than your sin. You think about that. All the sin of your life. Multiply that by all of mankind throughout all of history and his life is greater still. And so the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Spirit of God intervened and created Jesus. And Jesus lived his life with a mind and heart oriented not to himself, but oriented to God. Which is why at the age of 13, he is still puzzling the religious leaders of the day because up to that point, he has always had a mind oriented to the God and the things of God the Father. And his mind searched the Scriptures and he, and he was... And so have you ever asked yourself, did Jesus have to memorize Scripture? Yes. He had to memorize Scripture. Why? Because he was human. But he had a heart and mind toward the Scriptures from the birth. And so when he comes at 13 and, and Mary and Joseph are wondering, where are you, Jesus? He says, Wouldn't, don't you know I'd be about my father's business? I'm about the father. I'm oriented to him. Now there, because he was human, there was the ability and capacity to rebel against God because that's part of human nature. But because he's born of the spirit, he had a heart and mind inclined to God. Now, I'm, I'm just asking you to think a little bit. All right. Can you do that? We're there, we're thinking about this a little bit. Now, what is the result of the Holy Spirit? Now, we see verse 35, the intervention. Holy Spirit will come upon you. Which, by the way, that word come upon you is the same word used in Acts 1.8. To describe what the Holy Spirit will do to those who follow after Christ. Will come upon you. Now, the result. Therefore... The child to be born would be called holy, the son of God. Called holy. Now, it's not just referring to the ethical quality of Jesus. To be holy also means to be set apart for a purpose. I, I've shared with you before, one of the most vivid ways for me to understand what holiness means is a toothbrush. And that my toothbrush is my toothbrush. And I don't want it used with anyone else's purposes. I don't want to be used to clean the tires of the car. I don't want to be used to brush teeth on another person. I don't want to be used to, to uh, clean the sinks. All right? Um, it is set apart for my teeth. And if ever used for any other purpose, it is to be quickly thrown away or sanitized in some very thorough manner. All right? So when it says that he is born of the Spirit... Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. He is set apart for a very special purpose for God. And he will be great in that purpose. And then, and by the way, do you know that God has a purpose for every single one of you? He has a purpose for you. And when you're born, he knows your name. He knows who you are, even in your mother's womb. He knows who you are. And as you're born into this world, He has a purpose for you. But I would argue 
that that purpose cannot be truly fulfilled until you have an encounter with God's Spirit. And that this intervention that takes place in the world in general takes place specifically in your heart. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He is of the same nature as God the Father. So when he talks about someone being the Son of God, it is to say they have the same qualities of this person. And I can, I can look at my, my children and someone said, well, that's a, a son of Jared right there. What they're saying not necessarily is maybe that they look like me because they don't look that much like me, uh, but they act like me or they have some characteristics about me. And so when they said he is the son of God, he has the nature of God the Father. He has the characteristics of the God the Father because he is born of God the Spirit and the Spirit of God overshadowing Mary. Now, this is very important. Because the result of the Holy Spirit is not just limited to Jesus Christ. I would argue that Jesus Christ, the miracles He performed, are done the same way God can do miracles around us. Through the Spirit of God. There was a sense where Jesus walked this earth, was aware of what God was doing as the Spirit of God made it known to Him, submitted to God's Spirit, and trusted and depended on God's Spirit to work through Him. And so when he prays and people are healed, it's done by God's Spirit. When new life begins in any person, it's done by God's Spirit. Now, I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 35 through 58. I invite you to turn here in your Bibles. We're about to see the result of the Holy Spirit in our life. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps a wheat or some other grain. All right, so you understand the illustration here. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. To each kind of seed, its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. And there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So the point he's trying to bring out is our earthly bodies are different from heavenly bodies to come. But what he is saying is that your earthly body, consider it as a seed. It is husk. It is something to be buried. Buried. It is something to, to die. Alright? It is done with hope. It is done with a promise of more to come. And I've shared with you before, how do we die to ourselves? It is done through love. If you do not love somebody, you cannot die to yourself. Alright? It is to die to your desires, the things that appeal to your flesh, the comforts of this world. It is but us and understand the desires of this world are going to die anyway. So why not let them die for a purpose? 
than die death just happening to you. Get that? Your body, desires of this world, it is as a seed, it is a husk, and for it to really find fulfillment, it must die. It must be buried. Verse 42, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, our bodies. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. Do you understand? He's given amen to that. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Here's what's amazing about this. Jesus, God as spirit, came and took on flesh to take on a natural body so that we who are in natural body and dead spiritually can take on a spiritually heavenly body. That's the paradox. That's that's what's been done here. Thus it is written, verse 45, the first man, Adam, became a living beating. The last Adam became a life giving spirit that's an infinite difference between those two but it's not the spiritual that is first but the natural and then the spiritual the first man was from the earth a man of dust the second man is from heaven that's why he was conceived of the spirit and was the man of dust as was the man of dust so also are those who are of the dust And as the men of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And so we should desire infinitely, desire diligently to be of Christ who is of heaven so that we will not share in death alone. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. So if I am born in my natural state, born of Adam and dead to God, then I have no chance whatsoever to inherit eternal life in heaven. It's impossible. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised and perishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so when I come and I think of the manger scene, the nativity scene of, of God's spirit taking on flesh in a birth room, it is meant to give me hope in the death room. The spirit of God takes on flesh. So that I can have God's Spirit birthed in me so that when the time of death comes, I look forward with hope to taking on a spiritual body. Isn't it amazing? This is how God works. The birth room meant to be a blessing for the death room. The Spirit of God taking on flesh so that which is flesh can take on God's Spirit. 
Now, let me take you to another passage. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 11. The point of learning about this result of God's Spirit in Jesus Christ is because Jesus gives us invitation to walk in His Spirit. (laughs) We need to know what the Spirit of God did in Jesus to give us some idea of what the Spirit of God can do in our life. Romans 8, verse 1 and 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is something worth memorizing. Because my body, my mind, my conscience is always telling me I stand condemned. I stand condemned. I was thinking this morning, I was thinking about reading a, a Psalm of David and how he, uh, or reading about Nehemiah and how Nehemiah wanted to be remembered for good by God because of the works that he was doing in correcting injustice. And I thought to myself, God, what would you remember me for? What things have I done? that are worth remembering me for good. And I couldn't think of anything. I couldn't. I just thought, you know, God, you know my heart. And I was kind of discouraged and depressed a little bit. Then I remembered, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I am condemning myself, but when I am in Christ, there is now no condemnation. I no longer relate to God as my judge who condemns me. How do I relate to him? Well, let's read further. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son and the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh For those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Remember, that's how we're born. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, Now listen to this. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Well, how important is it to know the Spirit of God? If you do not have the Spirit of God, then you're not His. You have no hope for heaven if you don't have the Spirit of God in your life. You have no hope for this life also if you don't have God's Spirit. And so what I would argue is that being a Christian is not just ascribing to a set of beliefs. Being a Christian is not just saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. It's not just being baptized. It's not just joining a church. It's not just reading the Bible. It's not just saying I've got some some good disciplines in my life. Being a Christian is not just saying I, I avoid some bad things in my life. At the heart, when I read the Spirit, read the Scripture, 
by definition, to be a Christian, to be a child of God, to belong to Him, is that the Spirit of God is in your life. And I would argue that perhaps maybe the very source of many of our doubts as to whether or not we're a Christian is because we do not submit to God's Spirit. And therefore, is very little evidence of walking with God. Consequently, when it comes time to dying, the fear in our life is pronounced. Because the evidence that we meant to have as a hope, as a, as a deposit of what to come after, a, after we die, that deposit, that guarantee, we're not living in and submitting to today. You know how I know that we made a deposit or we, we put money toward a house? <laughs> I look at my bank account. <laughs> it's, it's done. That money is no longer there. All right? Uh, there's no question as to the house. If something happens and someone's asking who's responsible, the money's there. We're, we're putting it toward it. When it comes to death in our life and we wonder, well, do, who's, whose body does this belong to? And we're asking, what's going to happen to us when I die? When we have a life of, of submitting to the Spirit of God, it becomes more and more evident of God's working in our life. And so consequently, the doubts become less and less. Understand, it is natural and normal for us to have doubts in our life. But I would argue that the doubts are diminished as we submit to Him in our life. So when it comes time to physical dying, do you look back on the role of God's Spirit in your life as evidence of God's working in your life? If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, Keep on reading the text in verse 36. He brings out Elizabeth. This was a cousin of Mary. She was much older, well past the age of childbearing. Behold, her relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. He says, Mary, if you doubt what God can do, just look. At Elizabeth. I wonder, does anyone look at you to find encouragement in their faith? When God's challenging someone to say, I want to follow God and say, uh, and takes them on in a step of obedience, do they ever look to you to say, consider this servant? You know how they are. They're old. They're incapable. But look at what God has done. You see, our encouragement in discipling someone else is not in our abilities. It's not in how smart we are. In fact, it's in the very points of weakness that God can show himself. So just because you don't have it together doesn't mean you can't disciple. In fact, it's, it's because you don't have it together that you can disciple someone. It's what you go with about the parts of your life that's fallen apart. When your life has fallen apart and you take it to the Lord and you see God working, then you've got something to share with somebody. 
But if you think, oh, I've got to get it all together, how can you testify to God's power? All you can share about is what you can do. And they don't need what you can do. Folks need what God can do. And so here, Elizabeth, in her old age, becomes the point of encouragement. And verse 37, here's the lesson. When you think of Elizabeth, Gabriel says, I want you to think about this when you see Elizabeth. Nothing will be impossible with God. Let's make our life a testimony to that truth. Nothing will be impossible with God. And so I want you to consider the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit. If if God can, out of a, a virgin, create life in Jesus Christ, how much can He create life in you? Not to have a child, but have Jesus in your life. That Jesus might be birthed in you. And you say, well, you know, I've got all these bad qualities. I've got all these bad habits. I've got these bad desires. I'm just telling you, if God can create something out of nothing, then He can certainly transform your something into God glorifying. That's the idea. Nothing will be impossible with God. And so, how do we do that? I would argue that Mary's response is the correct response. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. I'm your... The word there is your, your bond slave. It's a terminology referring to those slaves in the Old Testament period who had opportunity to be released, but chose rather to continue in their relationship to the master because they loved their master. Bond slave. He says, I, Mary says, I am your servant. I belong to you. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed. This is the response that we have to God. God, I belong to you. Nothing I have is of mine. And God, I'm going to trust your word. Now, what did that mean for Mary? Was it a good word? Yes and no. As a great word and that Messiah would be born and be born through her and that she was favored of God, but it also meant that she would face the open ridicule of her community, that she could probably face the, the isolation, separation of her spouse. Um, I don't know what her parents were thinking in this, but I can imagine a few things. Uh, no mention is given of, of the parents' reaction, but it had to be pretty extreme. Um, this is what it meant. It meant a life of a major inconvenience. But she trusted in God's word. Here's the thing. Sometimes we're thinking, you know what? I, being a Christian is either one or the other. Either you're sold out to God or you're disobedient. You're disobedient. It is by definition radical. It is extreme. There is not a, a part where I'm going to give this portion to God and I'm going to give this portion to myself. Understand, the portion you keep to yourself is going to die with you. What you submit to God and surrender God is that which can only endure forever. Everything you, you keep to yourself is going to die. And so it's either or. And so Mary said, you know, God, all right. Your plan, I have some questions. But I'm submitting to you. Let it be done according to my will. I will see the beauty of your authority and I will rest in that authority. That's a hard thing to do sometimes. Because you see the authority of God in the direction of God, and you don't like it, and it hurts, and it's painful. 
But if it was according to your pleasure, then that's going to be of death because your heart and mind is of death. When I see this passage, it lets me know through Mary's example, if Mary can do that, I can do that. And if God can give birth of Jesus in Mary's life, God can create new life in me. And it doesn't really matter how many bad habits I have. It doesn't really matter that I was born as a cut rose. You know one of the great stories with Moses and Aaron? God took a rod, totally out of the ground for years, decades, and made it bud to show his starting power. If God can do that, he can take you as a cut rose and transplant you in the ground of the Holy Spirit and his word and let it be life-giving in our life. But here's the catch. You have to bury your body, your desires, out of love to God, out of love to others, and watch what God will do. That's a powerful thing. And so that's what we see at Christmas story. And so how much can God do? If God can raise Jesus up from the dead, it shows us the extent of his power. And if God sends Jesus to the cross, it shows the desire of his heart for you. You ever question God's goodness or his capability? In those questions of his goodness or his capability, you go back to the cross and shows his heart for you. You go to the tomb and the resurrection and it shows his power of what he can do. But it all started in a birth room. And when it comes time to our death room, it makes all the difference whether we saw the birth of Christ as for you to give birth of God's spirit in you. You know, what does this mean to be filled with the spirit? There have been some times when I've had success against my self-destructive desire of ice cream. I found it helpful if I've invested in a healthier body. In other words, if I spent some time sweating and exercising and exerting myself, I come to that freezer and I look at that ice cream calling my name. And I'm thinking, yeah, that normally has an appeal to me, but I've just invested a lot of time in reducing the effects of that ice cream. Why am I going to go to that now? I found the power that has been diminished. It's not because I'm telling myself all throughout the day, okay, today I'm not eating ice cream. Today I'm not eating ice cream. No, no, I'm not eating ice cream today. You know what happens when I do that? I think nothing but ice cream all day. <laughs> my, my desire is growing stronger and stronger. All right? That's not how it's done. And so the Christian life is not so, uh, okay, I'm not going to tell that lie. I'm not going to tell that lie. I'm not going you know, to be selfish. I'm not going to be selfish. I'm not going to look there. I'm not going to look there. It, it's not done that way. The Christian life is that you have been enraptured by a greater vision. And that greater vision captures desires for lesser things. And when we have desires for nothing but our life, it's because we are filling our mind with the things of this world, which is why Colossians 3.2 says, set your affections not on things below, but on things above. Set your affections. That's yours to do. But it's done by the Spirit of God prompting us with the 
holy discontent of the things of this world. To say, I'm not satisfied anymore. I need something more. And so with every thought of, you know, I just need to do some more shopping. I just need to get some more gifts. I need to spend some more time with the family. I need to eat some more food. I need to look on this, this internet image. I need to read this book. I need, and all these cravings that we always have to go back and back and back for because they're never quite there and satisfying. It's because they're filled with lesser things. It's to say, God, you know, I'm, I'm trying to fill this craving with something in this world, but have we ever thought, maybe it's done in Christ, maybe it's done by praying, maybe it's done by, by singing unto Him, maybe thinking unto Him, and that's why it's so important this Christmas, not to be filled with uh, Christmas trees, and uh, the various Christmas activities, and shopping, because it leaves a depression in your life, it's a called post-Christmas depression, but if you have Christ in your heart, that you treasuring things uh, and spending time investing in Him and thinking about what Christ has done. December 26 comes and Christ is still there. This December 26, we're going to be doing a funeral for one of our own. It's Katie Moore. Talk about depression after Christmas. Go to a funeral. But if you're celebrating Christ... In Christmas, I can go to that funeral and say that this funeral makes all the world difference because we just celebrated a birth room. And if Katie submitted to Christ, then in no ways is she diminished. Just the body that was wasting away, but the spirit is brought up and renewed with Christ. You want to have that hope when it comes time to your own death? then surrender to God's Spirit today. Submit to Him today. Say, God, if anything happens today, I want it to be out of worship to You. Say, I'm dying to my desires. And God, what You reveal to me through Your Word is what matters. Be it to me according to Your will. And here's the thing. God's written out His will to us. Do you know what it is? Have you searched His Word to know His will? That's probably maybe the first place to start. Say, I want to search the will of God. I want to search His Word. And what He says, I will do. I found that folks grow not so much of how, they, how much they know. I know people who have been in church all their lives. There's no real difference in their life. Now, I've seen some people who only started seeking the Lord maybe a few months. And there's change. It's so dynamic. And the simple difference was, is what they read, they believed, and they did. Versus those of us who will read and think that we are holy just by the reading of it. And so let's just read some more. That will feel better. Don't deceive yourselves. Submit to God's spirit. Let's pray.